1981, Red Dragon, a book about serial killers and FBI profilers featuring a character named Hannibal Lecter was published. It didn't exactly make a big splash at the time. It was in fact to be the sequel, The Silence of the Lambs, in 1988, that made the character famous. But Red Dragon contains within it the seeds of the modern phase of the centuries-long obsession with murderers as anti-heroes. Thomas Harris's novel was to update the serial killer, making him, and it almost always is a him, the cerebral, calculating monster, the cultured, well-spoken man of learning who is always one step ahead of the brilliant FBI agent who pursues him. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean. And here at the Cabin in the Woods, we investigate tales of monsters, hauntings, UFOs and other fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the Cabin, and in this episode, we'll be investigating the effects that Red Dragon and Hannibal Lecter had on the public image of serial killers. October is just around the corner, and it's beginning to feel like high autumn here at the Cabin. I had to boot up the stove for the first time this year, so chopping wood is back on the to-do list, uh, the crisp evenings are great for stargazing, however, so I'm keeping an eye on the constellations every night. For when the stars are in alignment, I can undergo my beginning. <clears throat> anyway, it's a cool autumn morning, so today's beverage is a lovely fragrant coffee from Cork Coffee Roasters, a company I do recommend. Grab yourself a brew and get ready for this episode. A chair made of antlers, red dragon, and the feta... Si- <clears throat> a chair made of antlers... Red Dragon and the fetishization of serial killers. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. That, of course, is William Blake's poem, Tiger, Tiger, beginning of it anyway, from 1794. And uh, the poem kind of states that where there is light and life, there must also be darkness. It's about duality. And in this episode, we will be looking at the two sides of that coin as we are finally uh, taking a look at serial killers, something I've avoided thus far. It's a bit of a cliche of, of of crime fiction and of podcasting of course crime fiction and podcasting do go together like peas and carrots not always something i felt i wanted to talk about until i had a way of coming at it that was a little bit different because it is well trod terrain so i promise we do have a slightly personal take on this one some of my own personal thoughts feelings and uh, readings will be brought into this as well but first, we have some merchandise. We're finally on the merchandise train. So if you're a fan of the show and you would like to help us out, well, all you have to do is go over to where we are on Twitter, which is at Strange Ireland or Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And if you click on the link in the bio, I've done it carefully. So now it doesn't just automatically take you to the stream of the episodes. It will give you a choice. You can choose to go and look at the store and we have mugs and we have T-shirts. And they both have our lovely new logo on them with those beautiful, that mysterious forest with the sort of autumny, yellowy, orangey colours and the sun going down, you know, to give you a nice feeling of mysteriousness. The mug has got the logo on the front and then on the back it has critical, not cynical, written to remind you during your day, you know, to be crit- critical but not cynical, which is kind of how we like to play it here when we're investigating stories of the strange and perhaps you will as well. 
If you end up getting a t-shirt or a mug, please, well, please do take a look, even if you're not intending to, but we would love it. Uh, send us a picture of yourself doing it to either of those, and we'll be happy to share it and uh, give you a shout-out as well. So that'd be loads and loads of fun. I've uh, ordered this stuff myself, checked them out, made sure they're all good. Some of my friends have as well. Some listeners have gotten some already. So, yeah, we'd love to know what you think about them. Uh, I had a chat this week with listener Liam from Cork asking if we would consider doing an episode about Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock, of course, is the, he's like a sort of an alternate history guy. He's interested in the idea that there were like mysterious civilizations on Earth sort of like 12,000 years ago. He's associated big time these days with um, the, the supposed comet crash at about that time that wiped out some super civilization. And he's promoted all the time by Joe Rogan. And obviously myself and my brother Donald did an episode some time ago about Joe Rogan and Chris Jericho and the responsibilities of broadcasting and podcasting and having these guys on. Now Liam is particularly, he finds Graham Hancock particularly problematic because he has taken some archaeology classes himself and has something of an idea of how how much work goes into that stuff and, and how people know what we know when it comes to science and in particular archaeology. And he finds somebody like Hancock, who is basically not adhering to any of the standards of the practice, coming in, just making up his own stuff and making a bit of money off it. He, he finds it, I think, a little bit offensive. And while, I mean, everybody should be able to say and publish what they want, you know, to a degree, um, there is certainly a another element going on at the moment, which I think is quite popular and quite trendy at the moment, which is the the ability of people to sort of sidestep traditional standards and just do whatever the hell they want and get a lot of attention and money for it. And as a man of science myself, I can tell you that some of these guys are are not subject to any checks whatsoever and are making a hell of a lot more money than people operating within the scientific system, which, to, to remind you, when it's working correctly, is, is there to provide some sort of rigor, some sort of standards, and ensure that people aren't just publishing any old nonsense. So it's a lot easier, a lot more fun, and a lot more lucrative just to come up with some offbeat uh, theory and get your name out there. And uh, yeah, you know, I have a lot of respect for the guys in the trenches doing the hard work, uh, people who are literally out on digs finding out what we really know, which is a lot more complicated, a lot more, a lot slow and a lot more collaborative. There's a lot less of the, the sort of, you know, one adventure guy goes off and has an adventure and discovers this crazy thing and changes everything. That has happened in the history of science and the history of archaeology, but not as often as, as people expect. And very often it's, it's a longer, slower and more collaborative effort. So, Liam, thanks for that. I actually don't feel like touching that subject until I get somebody on board who is an archaeologist and has a bit more knowledge than I. So, anyone listening out there, if you are a functioning archaeologist and you have feelings about Graham Hancock, good or bad, get in touch. We'd love to know. So what are we talking about this episode? We are talking about serial killers, of course. Now, the I am talking about that period in 1981 when Red Dragon is released and how this sort of, you know, creates a particular modern incarnation of the fictional serial killer. But it's obviously the fascination with true crime and with anti-heroes of all kinds goes back for centuries. Obviously, you've got Jack the Ripper in 1888 was, was a huge deal. Um, he, I think he probably invented... An earlier stage of this fascination he kind of was an archetype 
But yeah, a new chapter begins in 1981 with... Uh, with Thomas Harris and uh, Red Dragon and Hannibal Lecter. So we're going to be talking about Thomas Harris's inspirations, who were the real-life serial killers behind the story, and we're going to be talking about the effects of the, the character of Lecter in the public imagination. We're going to be talking about the creation of this sort of archetype of the super-genius serial killer and his opposite number, the heroic mind-hunter-type FBI profiler. Both of these characters, of course, leaving long shadows in the public imagination, but they sort of originate in their modern form in this book, uh, Red Dragon. And we're also going to be talking about, well, what does this fascination mean? Like, what are the what does it cover up about the differences and similarities between the fictitious serial killers and real ones? And ultimately, what is the impact of this sort of celebrity culture of serial killers that we now have? And what are the impacts of focusing on the men that do the killing over the victims and most importantly, the society that allows them to kill repeatedly. So I think there may be some surprises in here for you. There certainly was for me. So let's go back to the beginning. For me personally, not a true crime guy, never was. I had some books about the unexplained when I was a kid and there would always be a chapter about Jack the Ripper. So I, I thought he was interesting, primarily, I suppose, because he wasn't caught and we'll never know who he was. But slightly later, as a teenager... Um, my first inkling of sort of contemporary serial killer lore comes from a video game. It comes from a game called Shadow Man on the N64, which came out in 1999. It was an Acclaim Games uh, game. If you remember Acclaim, they made the Turok, the old Turok games. So Shadow Man is, is a, still a really interesting game, a very, a, quite an early open world game, uh, a very non-linear. So you're wandering around this mysterious, spooky world that is very influenced by voodoo and sort of New Orleans hoodoo and that sort of thing, which is always something I'm very interested in. I'm, I, I, mostly when this stuff shows up in pop culture, it's not dealt with particularly sensitively, and I'm not going to say that this game does an amazing job. One thing it does do that's cool is your main character is a is a, a guy from New Orleans, and he's called Mike Le, Leroy, Mike Leroy, I think. So I've got to get my sort of Louisiana head on here. And um, he's just a really cool African-American character who is something you don't see much in games then or now. And he's a badass and he's cool and he has all these sort of voodoo powers. If you're interested in that sort of thing, by the way, we did an episode uh, about Lafcadio Hearn, who was a Anglo-Irish guy who helped to come up with the idea of New Orleans as a mysterious place. He was interested in all the, that same folklore as well. So check out the episode Lafcadio Hearn, the man who invented spooky New Orleans. So in the game Shadow Man, yeah, like I said, it's mostly about this kind of voodoo stuff. But the Shadow Man himself, he goes up against an enemy called Legion, which you might remember from the Bible and his catchphrases, for we are many. And there's a lot of kind of weird adult type content in this game because um, in order for Legion to bring about this kind of apocalypse, he has to recruit a team called the Five. And they're all serial killers operating in the modern day of, of 1999. So... Yeah, this was my own first inkling of, like, the culture and, and lore of contemporary serial killers. Now, the five, the book and the game, like, the booklet for the game, go into an incredibly, incredible amount of detail about the these guys and their backgrounds and their serial killing. And it's clear to me now that, like, some of them definitely have elements of real serial killers in there. I'll just give you a quick rundown on who these guys are. So, there's a guy called Marco Cruz, who's called the Repo Man. There's a guy called Milton Pike who's called the Video Nasty Killer. And he's a Vietnam vet who films all his own murders. So 
there's elements there of the the toolbox killers if you know that story they're the ones who did such horrific things to people in the back of a truck um and and they collect they like recorded audio tapes of this and after they were caught the to this day i believe the fbi use those tapes to desensitize uh, trainee agents so you, you might have noticed that in the show mind hunter the david lynch show mind hunter that was on netflix and i think its second season just came out this year but there's a bit somewhere in season one where they're going through quantico the fbi training place and you can hear the guys in the background listening to this tape of torture basically and that's the that's the the, the toolbox killers so milton pike the video nasty guy i think has elements of that the third member of the five is just called Jack Two because he he's somebody who appears to be imitating the original 1888 crimes of Jack the Ripper. We later find out it actually is him and he's sort of resurrected himself. There's also a, a guy called Avery Marks who is the home improvement killer and he's very much based on Ed Gein. The, the, um, Ed Gein, of course, being the guy Psycho is based on and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Avery Marks is called a home improvement killer because he breaks into people's houses and he turns all the lights off or he, you know, he pu- pulls the power and then he wears these gigantic goggles with like um, uh, infrared and he hunts people down in the dark in their own house and then of course uses their skin to make his own furniture, a bit like Ed Gein did as well. Lastly, there's a fellow called Victor Betrakian who calls himself the Lizard King nothing to do with Jim Morrison as far as I know but he's a medical guy who uh, kills vulnerable people who are in his care and this is definitely based on a guy called Harold Shipman who's actually the most prolific British serial killer and there's a huge bang of the occult off of all of these guys so like almost my first introduction into the world of like contemporary serial killer lore as a younger fellow was deeply steeped in mysticism and the occult and this is a connection that I'm going to follow throughout this episode. To give you an example, all of these guys have, not only do they have these kind of almost like wrestling or celebrity names, like we, we tend to give serial killers in the media in real life, but they all have these weird MOs uh, that are kind of dramatic and Hollywood-like and spooky and mysterious. And they often leave, some. one of them keeps canaries and leaves a canary skull with every victim with a little poem inside. And all of them leave poems um, behind with their victims so for example within the game there's a file that gives you all this information about the killers and at one point it says a poem found at the crime scene of one of victor betrakian's victims and the poem reads the lizard king shall lead the five from out the southern jail shall cut his bloody swathe true hate shall find a way in him the darkness stands revealed his eyes as void as a dead man's gaze as cold as the light from a dying star for we are many. So, clearly, these five serial killers are doing what they do, not just because they're, you know, sad, lonely, deranged, uh, damaged people. This is all part of some gigantic ritual. This is part of some gigantic occult uh, ritual which is designed to bring about some sort of apocalypse. And why, why is this important? Why does this show up in media time and time again? Well, I have strong feelings about this. I think when it comes to stuff like serial killers, we want there to be ritual and we want there to be meaning to these acts. So think of the cult from True Detective, season one, obviously those other seasons never happened. Think about From Hell, which is uh, by Alan Moore, a comic book about Jack the Ripper, in which Jack the Ripper's murders are not just the meaningless 
spasms of some you know failed guy they, they are this deep meaningful occult uh, they have this occult significance especially in that epic chapter four where um, the, the the killer takes uh, another friend around London and points out the occult significance of all the different architectural uh, points and history of London and, and ties all of his killings into that and you will also find this link between serial killers and the occult in Red Dragon which we'll get to and what I'm getting to here is that with all of this material there has to be meaning to the actions of the killers it's as if we cannot allow evil to be banal and this I mean if you want to go further on this think about how just how often we link the Nazis to the occult now with some justification some of them uh, definitely were interested in the occult and their sort of crazy worldview absolutely had elements of it but there's a much deeper sat satisfaction happening when, when we make that link which is that we're utterly uninterested in the idea of ordinary people just doing evil things because that's the way the world is that is not sexy and exciting when it comes to writing books or movies and in reality it's it's downright spooky and chilling and upsetting and depressing in a way that kind of exciting serial killer stories generally are not we don't want these bad things to happen just because in fact we crave meaning especially when it relates to bad things and there can be meaning as we'll see but it isn't easy for us to see it as a societal thing we prefer to see it as a narrative about personal responsibility these serial killers are bad not only are they bad they must be evil they must be demonic they must be occult as we'll see, both elements are actually important. There is, of course, a personal responsibility element. These guys are bad dudes. There is also a societal element, which is far more important than I think is generally realized. So this wedded to a culture of celebrity and the natural human impulse to be fascinated by the darker things in life have given birth to the myth of the occult serial killer and the super genius serial killer. Now, the history of anti-heroes is long. We've always been fascinated by the bad people who do the bad things. You can go back to Lord Byron. You can go back to the, the Hellfire Club gentry who we talked about in our previous episodes. Go check those out. Those were the upper class of Dublin who were believed to be devil worshippers and uh, doing all sorts of terrible things. Obviously, there was a, a fascination with serial killers that ran throughout the 1960s and 70s. Some obvious famous ones would be the Moors murders, the Yorkshire Ripper, and, and, and the Zodiac Killer, of course, who I have talked about on um, the Some Kind of Movie podcast, if you're interested. We talked about the Zodiac movie. But in 1981, a new chapter happens. The serial killer idea gets a shot in the arm from Thomas Harris's book, and it kind of modernizes the genre. Now, the horror writer Grady Hendrix characterizes uh, this evolution as being a sort of a natural evolution in the history of the horror genre. So I'm going to read from his book Paperbacks from Hell, which is great. It is what it sounds like. It's a, a sort of a potted history of schlocky 60s, 70s, 80s horror paperbacks. But his book kind of ends with a transitional point where he makes the point that horror, supernatural horror is seeging into what will become the serial killer genre. So Grady Hendrix writes, But 1981 was the dawn of something new. That was the year the term serial killer entered the mainstream. And that was the year that saw the publication of the book Stephen King called probably the best popular novel to be published since The Godfather. Genre historian Douglas E. Winter wrote that, although many established novelists may have written the second best book of the year, 
There was no doubt that the best horror novel of the early 80s was from a relatively obscure thriller writer named Thomas Harris. The book was Red Dragon. Deeply literary, informed by the latest thinking on forensics and criminal profiling, Red Dragon was a writer's book that inspired dozens of copycats but never quite broke into the mainstream. Even its ultra-80s movie adaptation Manhunter in 1986 didn't help sales. However, the book and the film did introduce a minor character named Hannibal Lecter, who was willing to wait his turn in the spotlight. It wouldn't be long before the culture caught up to him. According to the FBI, there were only 19 serial murders in the 60s, while the 70s saw a flood of 119 and the 80s yielded 200. The country watched in stunned fascination as one unshaven white man with a supervillain name after another was arrested for inhuman crimes. The Hillside Strangler, Son of Sam, The Freeway Killer, The Vampire of Sacramento, The Green River Killer, The Sunset Strip Killer, The Midtown Slasher. Don't know if I agree with Grady Hendrix that Red Dragon is, quote, deeply literary. I mean, it's very good. But uh, I guess compared to everything else he's talking about in Paperbacks from Hell, yeah, it's, it's definitely a step up. He continues, As the 80s progressed, supernatural horror felt exhausted, with the same old writers dishing out the same old books. Horror movies were all campy slaughter aimed at teens in on the joke. But the serial killer book walked the line between crime fiction and horror novel. So yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, I will say that my favourite thing that Grady Hendrix ever wrote was an article about psychic detectives from the Victorian era and how stupid they were and how bad they were at their job. I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. To finish off my quote from Paperbacks from Hell, Hendrix says, Horror was out, serial killers were in. The horror fiction market of the late 80s was glutted and the inevitable crash was happening fast. Imprints collapsed like punctured lungs. Publishers shoveled books onto store shelves faster than readers could buy them. Customers swayed away in droves. Writers begged their editors to market their books as thrillers instead of horror. And I think that kind of most importantly shows the, the change in direction that was happening in horror fiction at the time. Don't call it horror, call it thriller. And he places most of this squarely on the shoulders of Thomas Harris. As he says, Red Dragon wasn't huge when it came out, and a lot of these cultural changes owe more to the sequel, Silence of the Lambs. But I thought it would be more interesting to take a deep dive into the first book and see the, the actual seeds of these characters and these archetypes. Now, I personally have a lot of nostalgia for Red Dragon because when I was a teenager, the film version came out in 2002. And my brother and our friends were really obsessed with this and, and they went through a brief uh, Thomas Harris phase, an intense uh, Red Dragon phase. My brother went so far, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, as to translate scenes from the book and the movie into Irish for a, a an all-Irish play that we had to do at school. And some, some of that dialogue... Uh, haunts my subconscious to this day. So there are lines of dialogue from the book and from the film which I still can't hear without thinking of that weird play. So uh, while we were waiting for the film to come out, we also got a hold of the 1980s Michael Mann film version of it called Manhunter, which I believe was one of the first DVDs we ever owned, which again, you know, a lot of nostalgia there. Both versions, actually the Manhunter film from the 80s and the 2002 Red Dragon version, they both have their fans and they both have 
cool things about them. I, I genuinely think they are both worth uh, checking out for, on their own merits. So enough of sort of beating around the bush. Let's get to Manhunter itself. And we're going to do a little bit of plot here, which I'm not good at writing plot summaries. So I've just swiped this from Wikipedia. So what actually happens in Manhunter, the book? In 1975, Will Graham, a brilliant profiler of the FBI, captured the serial killer Hannibal Lecter. However, Graham suffered serious injuries from the encounter and retired afterwards. Four years later, in 1979, a serial killer nicknamed the Tooth Fairy stalks and murders seemingly random families during sequential full moons. He first kills the Jacoby family in Birmingham, Alabama, then the Leeds family in Atlanta, Georgia, Two days after the Leeds murder, Agent Jack Crawford, Graham's mentor, goes to Graham's Marathon, Florida residence and pleads for his assistance. Graham reluctantly agrees. After looking over the crime scenes with only minimal insight, Graham realises he must visit Lecter and seek his help to capture the Tooth Fairy. The Tooth Fairy is revealed to the readers to be the production chief of a St. Louis film processing firm named Francis Dollar Hyde. He is a disturbed individual who is obsessed with the William Blake painting The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun. Dollarhide is unable to control his violent sexual urges and believes that murdering people, or changing them as he calls it, allows him to more fully become an alternate personality he calls The Great Red Dragon, after the dominant character in Blake's painting. Flashbacks reveal that his sociopathy is born from the systematic abuse he suffered as a child at the hands of both his sadistic grandmother and his family. So, no major spoilers there. Those are all things you find out fairly early on in the in the book. Now, the book is, is taut, it's tight, it's tense, and those are just the T words. It's expertly woven, it's very affecting, and it's extremely effective. I had a great time rereading this. I still love it. It's an amazing thriller. Thomas Harris wastes no time, he wastes no words. Every every single sentence does its job. It tells you what you need to know about the characters. And there's a whole lot of positive things I want to say about this book. I absolutely do recommend you to read it. It certainly is an artifact of its time, but it holds up very well. It's And it, it's really, really great fun. There are elements of the, the gothic in there as well, which makes me think of Psycho, of course, which was an earlier serial killer book. And... Especially with Francis Dollarhide, who is the Tooth Fairy, he lives in this big old rambling um, abandoned mansion, which his grandparents ran as a, a care home. And yeah, I mean, you know, if that doesn't make you think of Psycho, and plus his obsession with his dead mother, which is an important part of the story as well. The book is, is effectively, it's creepy, it's unsettling. At times it's very gross and, and uh, the horrible stuff is really effective and really memorable. So he, he's hitting all the right notes for a horror story for a true crime story and for an American gothic to be to be fair. Albeit that I now find serial killer books of this ilk oddly nostalgic because it it's like a relic from a time when you kind of accept that m most things in, in society are correct and as they should be except for this one uh, this one thing which is wrong and this one guy who is dangerous. So I find that uh, a little bit wistful at the moment when we're so deep in systemic problems. But things to note here. So the killer breaks into the homes of middle class and up uh, well-to-do white families. Uh, well, presumably white. Thomas Harris does point out when somebody is black. He doesn't point out when somebody is white. So I think we presume that they are. Uh, so that's important. We'll get to that. Also, the killer is adhering 
to a strange, mystical, and almost occult philosophy, which seems to have some kind of cosmic significance, at least, to him. So the book is not going out there and saying, you know, that his, his delusions are real and he really will become this red dragon. But to him, and we spend a lot of time inside his head, yes, it's, it's absolutely real. So everything he's doing is for that purpose. The way the FBI are portrayed, they respond quickly and efficiently. They are absolute out-and-out good guys. They are competent and well-meaning and hard-working. But still, they can only succeed with the help of a man who is on a level of genius that is parallel to the killer. And the, the connections between Will Graham, the profiler, and the Tooth Fairy Killer are made over and over and over again. And it's hinted rather strongly that this is because Will Graham has a touch of mysticism in him as well. So it's like not only is the serial killer operating on this sort of mystical level, but in order to be able to, you know, get into his mind and track him down, the, the good guy has got to be able to do the same thing as well. So the two last, so the lasting cultural effects from the book and from Silence of the Lambs, of course, which was which was a much bigger success, are twofold. There are two archetypes that have lasted from this. There is the super smart and deliberate and mystical serial killer and his nemesis, the super smart FBI profiler. So let's examine the profiler first. So Thomas Harris, who by all accounts is a quiet and rather personal man, when he was preparing for this book, he attended classes at Quantico, which is, of course, the FBI Academy in Virginia. Again, if you've seen Mindhunter, they spend quite a lot of time at Quantico. If you've seen the Silence of the Lambs film, a good chunk of the beginning of the film takes place at Quantico. So Harris went there and he was learning about the then new killer profiling techniques that were happening. He uh, apparently is such a mild-mannered guy that upon rereading the book himself later, he was horrified by it and had this sort of, uh, wow, did, did that come out of me kind of a moment. So while he was at Quantico, Thomas Harris met with Robert Wrestler, who, uh, not wrestling with a W, unfortunately, that would be even more fun. This is R-E-S-S-L-E-R, -S -S -E Robert Wrestler. So he's one of the guys who came up with this concept of FBI profiling. Um, it's also believed that he coined the term serial killer. So he's the guy who travels around the country doing a lot of interviews with serial killers and breaking them down into personality types and other elements of the crimes and then like creating a database and cross-referencing all of this stuff to try and make predictions about future actions. So a lot of this stuff made its way, of course, into the TV show Mindhunter. And he's also associated with several, quote, superstar serial killers that everybody knows. So he was involved with Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, and another potential inspiration who would have been making waves in Quantico at this time was of course John E. Douglas who's the guy who actually wrote Mindhunter the book that the series is based on. Now I have a little quote here this is from Leah Weinerman and this is from the American Psychological Association so this is just a little bit of information about what was going on at this time when profiling was brand new so Weinerman writes Nowadays, profiling rests sometimes uneasily somewhere between law enforcement and psychology. As a science, it is still a relatively new field with few set boundaries or definitions. Its practitioners don't always agree on methodology or even terminology. The term profiling has caught on amongst the general public, largely due to movies like The Silence of the Lambs and TV shows like Profiler. Uh, David Berkowitz, New York 
Oh, sorry, I'm missing a little bit here. But she says that these guys, uh, when they were trying to catch David Berkowitz, who was the son of Sam in the 60s and 70s, the profiler says, what I would do is sit down and look through cases where the criminals have been arrested. I listed how old they were, whether they were male or female, their level of education, did they come from broken families, did they have school behavioural programs problems. I listed as many factors as I could come up with and then I added them up to see which ones were the most common. In 1974, the FBI formed its Behavioural Science Unit to investigate serial rape and homicide cases. From 1976 to 1979, several FBI agents, most famously John Douglas and Robert Ressler, interviewed 36 serial murders to develop theories and categories of different types of offenders. And again, that's all the sort of stuff you'll see in the first season of Mindhunter, which is, is not my favourite show based on this material. Um, it's not even my favourite show I've mentioned thus far. I prefer the early Hannibal Lecter movies. I prefer um, I prefer season one of True Detective. And I prefer... I, I'm going to give a shout out to the Unabomber series as well. I actually prefer that one too. But there's no doubt about it that Mindhunter is covering fascinating ground. I have another quote here. There's a book called From Making Murder. Sorry, the book is called Making Murder. I've written from. <laughs> Making Murder, the fiction of Thomas Harris by Philip Simpson says that according to Wrestler, the FBI... I always want to <laughs> I want to think of Wrestler with a W. According to Wrestler, the FBI's public affairs office asked him to give Thomas Harris a tour of the BSU in the early 1980s. Harris told Wrestler that he was writing a second novel, this one about a serial killer. Uh, Ressler explained to Harris how profiling worked and what role the FBI would play with local law enforcement in a serial murder investigation. Harris listened, saying little, as Ressler shared details about the crimes of notorious serial killers such as Edmund Kemper, who murdered co-eds in and around Santa Cruz, California. He is the big guy with the moustache in, um, in, in the Mindhunter show and Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, whose brutal crimes shocked even veteran police officers. Ressler mentioned that psychiatrists were being called in as consultants on these cases more and more. Harris most likely filed this fact away to re-emerge as the character of Hannibal Lecter, the serial-killing psychiatrist who helps the FBI develop profiles of unidentified killers, which later took shape in his mind. Wrestler's final literary verdict on Harris, for what it's worth, is that his novels are, quote, superb, though they are not truly realistic. So this world of Quantico and the FBI profiler is, is represented in, in Red Dragon by Will Graham. So Graham is brilliant, but he's also troubled. He's so troubled by what happened to him when he caught Hannibal Lecter years earlier that he just wants to stay out of this whole world. He's got a new life going on. He's left, he's left the bureau, he fixes boats in some little town in, in Florida, and he's got a new life, a new wife, he doesn't want anything to do with this stuff anymore, but you're never out. The world, it turns out, needs his dark gift. So, you know, Crawford, his old boss, comes looking for him when these new killings start. It's a classic scenario, it's a classic setup, it's a bit cliched, but Thomas Harris handles it well. It's implied that Graham can somehow think like the killers, that he can somehow get into their heads. But he pays a terrible price for this ability because he's unable to separate the terrible things he knows and thinks about serial killers from the other stuff in his life. 
at one point in the novel Hannibal Lecter even gives him the kind of you know now now classic cheesy uh, intercourse where he says something like oh you and me we're not so different but again it's it's played well in the book but something that has been done to death ever since there's a wonderful quote about will graham where thomas harris says quote he viewed his own mentality as grotesque but useful like a chair made of antlers there was nothing he could do about it which you might recognize as the quote i've chosen as the name for this episode I love that imagery, a chair made of antlers, grotesque but useful. And it's also said at one point by a colleague in the book about Will Graham that, quote, you can have him retired, but the feds like to know he's around. It's like having a king snake under the house. They may not see him much, but it's nice to know that he's there to eat the moccasins. The implication is that he's so close to the serial killers that he's actually dangerous and messed up in his head. And uh, this keeps him distant from his colleagues and from the ability to have any kind of normal life the fbi as a whole is shown as being you know everybody's super smart everybody is super competent they have all the best scientists psychologists everybody they the book goes into really interesting detail about how they do all their work how they look for clues and i presume a lot of this stuff is realistic enough and that thomas harris would have taken this from his experience when he was there but basically everybody is working round the clock to make sure that more families are not being killed, which of course is how we do like to imagine our police and authorities operating. Notably, the people they're trying to save in this book are nice, relatable, middle-class white families. Now this is important as the serial killer, you know, hunting down you know, ordinary white families, ordinary white women primarily, especially in slasher genre, this is kind of how serial killers have been overrepresented in media ever since, and in urban legends as well. Anytime you've ever been forwarded something saying, oh, don't go to the shopping center because these, gang, these gangs are doing something, or, you know, look out before you get into your car, or there's a guy hiding under your car. Those are all, you know, fears that sort of middle-class people send each other to make themselves feel like they are vulnerable to these malevolent forces from outside. But how common is this? How accurate is this? we'll get there so even even so even though the fbi are shown as super smart and competent it still falls to graham to save the day and largely because of this mystical gift he has and yeah it's shown that he has almost mystical tendencies his breakthroughs are shown to happen not only because he's able to think like the killer but perhaps because he has visions so on in on page 196 we get this bit. This is Graham thinking about uh, the Tooth Fairy Killer and, and trying to figure out who he is or where he is. Sometimes Graham felt close to him. A feeling he remembered from other investigations has settled over him in recent days. The taunting sense that he and the dragon were doing the same things at various times of the day. That there were parallels in the quotidian details of their lives. Somewhere the dragon was eating or showering or sleeping at the same time he did. Graham tried hard to know him. He tried to see him past the blinding glint of slides and files, beneath the lines of police reports, tried to see his face through the louvers of print. He tried as hard as he knew how. But to understand the dragon, to hear the cold drips in his darkness, to watch the world through his red haze, Graham would have to see things he could never see, and he would have to fly through time. We then get an extended flashback to Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy, his, his abusive childhood, and it's implied that Will Graham is somehow 
mystically seeing this as well. So again, the whole concept of the serial killer and the guy who's so close to him that only he can catch him, that they couldn't possibly be ordinary people who just do bad things because they're, they're you know, messed up. It has to be this more meaningful, dark, demonic, occult thing. And I, I mean, this book doesn't even go the heaviest into that, into that world, but the, the flags are absolutely there. Again, there's a touch of the gothic and a touch of the supernatural, showing that the book Red Dragon is something of a traditional, a transitional text on the road to serial killer crime being the horror mainstay that it was uh, throughout the 80s and, and later on. Uh, but there's also an element of occult, this, this element of occultism would always kind of be there in the background and continued as late as, as I said at the top, in the Shadow Man game from 1999, where the five serial killers are working together to bring about some kind of occult apocalypse. So much for the FBI profiler. As for his nemesis, there are really two in this book. So you've got Hannibal Lecter himself and you've got the Tooth Fairy. Hannibal Lecter, of course, is a relatively minor, he's an important character, but he's minor. So Will Graham is trying to catch the Tooth Fairy by and large. He has to resort to uh, talking to Lecter and getting information from Lecter as part of the investigation. But the two of them really represent different ends of the serial killer stereotype. So the Tooth Fairy represents the occult serial killer. He's delusional, he's got alternate alternate personalities, he's physically grotesque, or at least he believes himself to be. Uh, he's obsessed by a kind of a dark demon whom he calls the Red Dragon. And he has a connection to classical culture, his obsession with the painting of William Blake. He's also, as we mentioned, connected to Graham by some mystical force. And he's not just killing people because he's bored. He's not just killing people because he's a dick. He is, quote-unquote, transforming them. He's changing them. He believes that he's part of some larger cosmic uh, drama, that his, his actions have some uh, cosmic significance. So this is the serial killer of Shadow Man. This is the serial killer of True Detective. It's all about the ritual. It's all about the deliberacy. These guys are transcending their ordinary human origins. And to some degree, this character is based on two killers that Thomas Harris would have researched, one known as the Search and Destroy Killer and the slightly more famous BTK, the Bind, Torture, Kill Killer. But like them, he is human originally and he is one who has been abused and broken by family and by institutions. And for me, that's an important touch of reality because this is something that does happen in real life. So as much as... The Tooth Fairy is this archetype of the of the demonic and archetype of the grotesque. The link to reality is always there. And he was an ordinary kid who was just badly treated by the institutions that were supposed to have been looking out for him. And in reality, when you investigate serial killer, when you investigate their lives, this is what you see again and again. So for me, this is an important link to reality and a nice touch by Thomas Harris. So he's been abused by family and he has turned to the fantastic and the grotesque in order to get revenge and self-justification. Not so Hannibal Lecter, the gentleman killer. Now he's a different kettle of fish altogether. He's rumoured to be based on a fellow by the name of Alfredo Trevino, who was um, a killer who was in a prison in Mexico. And Thomas Harris actually met him. He was, I think, a journalist at the time and was interviewing inmates for a, an article. And he came across this fellow Alfredo Trevino, and, and Alfredo Trevino 
apparently, I don't know what he was wearing. He must not have been wearing a a prison uniform for some reason. But Trevino was so was so well spoken, so polite, and so intellectually um, stimulating that Harris presumed him to be a prison doctor. And they had an odd conversation where Trevino basically extracted a lot of information from Harris about the prisoner he was there to see. And it was only afterwards that Harris discovered he was, in fact, an inmate. So this story always stuck with Harris. He remembered being grilled, being interrogated by this kind of steely-eyed, hyper-intelligent prisoner. He said there was a certain elegance about him. So... Folks reckon that this is where Hannibal Lecter comes from, and in some of the specifics, that's absolutely true. But I want you to have a listen to just a couple of quotes here from early on in the book. Now, this is how Hannibal Lecter is first introduced in the very first book in which he appears. This is the first time anybody ever is talking about Hannibal Lecter. So we hear, they say he's a sociopath because they don't know what else to call him. He has some of the characteristics of what they call a sociopath, He has no remorse or guilt at all. And he had the first and worst signs, sadism to animals as a child. He's a monster. I think of him, this is Will Graham by the way, he's a monster. I think of him as one of those pitiful things that are born in hospitals from time to time. They feed it and keep it warm, but they don't put it on the machines and it dies. Lecter is the same way in his head, but he looks normal and nobody could tell. A few pages later, we get this. They're talking to Dr. Chiltern, who is the guy who runs the hospital where Lecter is kept. He says, Frankly, I sometimes feel like Lecter's secretary rather than his keeper, Chilton said. The volume of his mail alone is a nuisance. I think, among some researchers, it's considered chic to correspond with him. I've seen his letters framed in psychology departments, and for a while it seemed that every PhD candidate in the field wanted to interview him. Interesting, folks. So Graham says out and out he's a monster. He's basically this misshapen, malformed thing that should have been left to die. This is a vast difference from how Francis Dollarhide is characterized. Hannibal Lecter is not some ordinary person who was, you know, twisted, who became twisted because he was let down by the systems. He was born bad. He can never he can never be changed. He can never be rehabilitated. He is an out and out monster. That's one of the very first things we hear about him, and that's huge, because this is part uh, this is part of the creation of the myth of the super monster, mega super predator, serial killer, the one who is completely beyond redemption. He's just a demon. Um, and also we get the chat from Dr. Chilton about like what a celebrity he is and how he's so intellectual and everybody's fascinated by him and all of the top men of psychology are literally framing their their correspondence with him on their own wall. We then get this bit where Chilton says, You know, when Lecter was first captured, we thought he might provide us with a singular opportunity to study a pure sociopath. It's so rare to get one alive. Lecter is so lucid, so perceptive, he's trained in psychiatry, and he's a mass murderer. He seemed to cooperate, and we thought that he could be a window on this kind of aberration. We thought we'd be like Beaumont, studying digestion through the opening in St. Martin's stomach. They, uh, they then talk about doing tests on Lecter to find out what's really going on in his head. He's impenetrable, too sophisticated about the tests for them to register anything. Edwards... Faber, even Dr. Bloom himself had a crack at him. I have their notes. He was an enigma to them too. It's impossible, of course, to tell what he's holding back or whether he understands more than he'll say. 
Oh, since his commitment he's done some brilliant pieces for the American Journal of Psychiatry and the General Archives, but they're always about problems he doesn't have. I think he's afraid that if we solve him, nobody will be interested in him anymore and he'll be stuck in a back ward somewhere for the rest of his life. So yeah, he's not even human, he's a creature, he's a thing, he's the furthest thing from the reality of the situation, which is of course the banality of evil, of ordinary people doing evil things, because folks, we don't want to think about that. And this is the birth of the modern iteration of the superhuman celebrity fetishized serial killer, and Hannibal Lecter is its lasting legacy. Now Red Dragon is a great book, it's a fun read. Hannibal Lecter rightly joined the pantheon of classic movie villains, maybe even horror movie monsters after the film version of the sequel came out, Silence of the Lambs. But its influence has obscured some of the realities about serial killers and the society in which they exist. Now, for more information on this, I turned to a book called A History of British Serial Killing uh, by David Wilson from 2009. Now, this book, as you can tell, it's British, it's not American. And I would love to, or, or any other country for that matter, I would love to have more comparisons for other countries. But this is what I've got to hand at the moment. I think that some of the elements can be transferred, probably not all of them. But we'll be making some observations and perhaps some assumptions about the state of serial killings in other countries as well. So David Wilson, the author, was the governor of two British prisons. And he was the director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. So I hope he knows what he's talking about. This is an incredible book. This kind of blew my mind when I read it first. Despite its rather <clears throat> potboilery title and its kind of trashy cover, it's extremely interesting. There are ideas here that I hadn't encountered anywhere else. It's extremely social-minded. It's all about getting away from the concept of focusing on the individual killer and more about the society in which it happened. So I, I found this very surprising when I first read it. So David Wilson starts out by saying, this is a history of British serial killing, not a history of British serial killers. What does that mean? Why is that difference important? He basically says, look, there's any number of places you can go to if you want to read about the details of these fellows' lives. That has been well covered. And to be honest, it hasn't really taught us a whole lot about how to spot these things or how to stop these things, which is something people would argue with for sure. But he says, look, whatever else, there is a lot more to be gained by looking at the victims, who they were, uh, and how the killers were able to get away with this for so long based on the society in which they operated. So not the personalities of the killers, but the victims and the society. And how was it that they were able to kill repeatedly? So Firstly, thinking about Hannibal Lecter and this, this myth of the notion of serial killers as hyper-intelligent, charismatic geniuses and the profilers who need to, quote, enter their mind. I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of this book. So David Wilson says, The notion of entering the mind of a serial killer can be traced to the FBI's Behavioural Support Unit, now known as the Investigative Support Unit, which was made famous by the novels of Thomas Harris, most notably Silence of the Lambs, and the British TV series Cracker and Wire in the Blood. Clever detectives and forensic psychologists stun the reader or viewer by always being one step ahead of the serial killer, able to predict how he will behave and where he will strike next. This is all very entertaining, but the truth is never quite as straightforward. Suffice to say that I have never felt it necessary to, quote, enter the mind 
of a serial killer, and I would even go so far as to say that anyone who claims to do so probably cannot be trusted. He then says about, you know, the charismatic sort of myth of the serial killer, he says, When dealing with serial killers, my most common emotional responses were boredom and depression, far from the charismatic, charming and cultured picture presented by Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter or Jeff Lindsay's Dexter, the serial killers I met were either wholly uncommunicative or so self-obsessed that they engaged in long, rambling, tedious monologues. I feel very seen, David Wilson. They were fascinated by themselves rather than by back, fine food, wine, architecture or blood spatter analysis. However, I do not deny that the serial killers I met were dangerous, and many of them had obviously psychopathic personalities. They could be manipulative, cunning and charming when the occasion demanded, and when they could gain some advantage from doing so. Um, And let's get to the occult stuff. Is there any truth behind that? Is there any evidence that serial killers are not in fact just these kind of boring self-obsessed narcissists and that they have these larger more interesting reasons for doing what they do well a few pages later he says the most comprehensive breakdown of serial killer types was devised by two american criminologists ronald holmes and james de Berger from or de Berger perhaps from 1988 having analyzed 400 serial murders they concluded that there are four main types visionary mission hedonistic and power control. A visionary killer is impelled to murder because he has heard voices or seen visions demanding that he kill a particular person or category of people. The voice or vision may be interpreted by the killer as belonging to a demon or to God. So to me that sounds like a good fit for the tooth fairy and so that is something that might be happening in real life. A mission killer has a conscious goal in his life to eliminate a certain identifiable group of people. He does not hear voices or see visions and his mission is self-imposed. So I don't know if Anders Breivik would count as a serial killer as he did his atrocity in sort of one one burst of mass killing. And I think mass killers are different to serial killers. The timing is important. But in terms of, you know, not not being so out of their mind that they're hearing voices, but they still have this um, desire to kill certain types of people, he would certainly fit into that. A hedonistic killer murders his victim simply for the thrill of it because he enjoys it. And the final category receives gratification from the complete control he has over the victim. He experiences pleasure and excitement not from sexual acts carried out on the victim, but from his belief that he has the power to do whatever he wishes to another human being who is completely helpless to stop him. So yeah, there is there are cases where this sort of what I'm calling the occult stuff, or, you know, rather the fact that they believe that they're involved in something more significant than just a tawdry murder, that can happen. But largely, according to Wilson, the bigger picture that we miss out on when we focus on the serial killer's personality is society. He says, there are those who would murder repeatedly in every time and place in history, in every country. And really, you can only learn so much by studying that. He says, what really matters is how they get away with it. What matters is who they kill and how those people are seen by society. He says serial killers are essentially opportunistic. They will take who they can. They will kill who they can. And they will get away with it repeatedly as long as the society they're in allows that to happen. The tooth fairy, it seems to me, would have been fairly unusual, especially 
after the 1970s in attacking relatively well-off white families who live in nice neighbourhoods. In this day and age, I think it's fair to say there would be no faster way to bring the police and the media down on you. Despite movies and urban legends, this sort of serial killer targeting these sort of people is relatively uncommon, according to Wilson. Now, this is in his book about British killers. I don't have an American... Uh, I don't have a, a decent comparison at hand, and I'd love to know more. So my, my research and my reading continues, but I think we can infer some of the same uh, tendencies and some of the same patterns. What Wilson does is he makes a breakdown of all serial killers in Britain over a hundred years. He's starting with Jack the Ripper in 1888 and he does an incredibly thorough breakdown of the victims. He's more interested in the victims than the serial killers. He shows that their victims fit overwhelmingly into specific groups and those are all what he calls like vulnerable types of people. Some of them are prostitutes, elderly people, gay men and runaways. He also has a chapter on ch child victims, which honestly I found less convincing, but his chapters about the first four categories I am 100% on board with. These are groups that society often doesn't care about, which may sound like a flippant remark. I do think it's true. It's just that the ways in which this not caring manifests itself are sometimes a little bit complicated or difficult to see. So complications resulting from the fact that these groups are not considered as important as others, are part of how serial killers who target these groups are able to get away with it for so long, and it's not because they're geniuses. In fact, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, who killed mostly prostitutes up to a certain point, he was interviewed nine times, and they never they never kind of caught on to him. So there's a there's a brilliant quote here in the British serial killing book. This is from Ian Brady of all people. So Ian Brady was one of the two Moors murderer, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, and he was in prison when the Yorkshire Ripper case was happening. And afterwards, Ian Brady, one serial killer offering an opinion on another, said, the fact that Sutcliffe managed to evade capture for five years was not due to his intelligence, but rather to an astonishing lack of it on the part of the police. Even more amazing was the fact that detectives had questioned Sutcliffe at his home several times during the five-year hunt, as, with his black beard, he fitted almost identically the police artist's portrait of the killer drawn from the descriptions of victims who survived. Why the police never thought to put him in a lineup for the surviving victims to identify defies comprehension. So there's a lot of different elements at play here, but according to Wilson, the reason why Sutcliffe was never fingered in interviews is because there's evidence from the interviews that the cops sort of saw him as a figure they could identify with. They repeatedly refer to him as being as kind of an ordinary, hard-working guy. There's other problems as well. There are well-publicized problems with the sheer amount of information the police were dealing with, the sheer amount of suspects, the fact that they couldn't cross-reference them and they didn't have a, an effective computer system. But at the end of the day, it does come down to ordinary cops on the beat, and it does come down to perceptions we have about different kinds of people. So Sutcliffe was seen as just an ordinary guy. Hey, he's like one of us. Not like the prostitutes who the police and the media struggled to portray to the public as deserving of sympathy. There's a great paper trail available that shows you how the the police were at the, at the top end were doing their best to 
sort of paper over the cracks in these women's lives and portray them in ways that uh, the ordinary public could actually identify with because unfortunately there was and, and probably is this idea that um, women who engage in, in prostitution are just putting themselves in harm's way and therefore somehow undeserving of our sympathy or, or our efforts to protect them. This even came down to the level of survivors. So basically Sutcliffe attacked at least one woman who escaped and uh, gave gave a statement to the police and she was not believed because partly because it was believed that she was a prostitute and her her interview and her description of the killer was not taken seriously in fact the public only started phoning in with information and, and giving a shit to be honest in large numbers once the yorkshire ripper killed his first non-prostitute victim he killed a woman by the name of josephine whitaker who is a building society clerk and the police genuinely noticed a change in the public's attitude. One policewoman who David Wilson quotes says something to the effect of, you know, before he was only targeting them, that was fine, but now he could be targeting us. So yeah, the, the us and them narrative plays into this hugely, and this really is one of the reasons why Sutcliffe was able to get away with what he did for so long. For a potentially comparable example in the US, uh, Jeffrey Damler is obviously a very well-known serial killer there. He largely targeted black men and men of, of Laotian background. And what he would do is take them into his house with the implication of like a, a homosexual encounter, basically, at a time when being gay was yeah, fraught with uh, social problems, shall we say. But on more than one occasion, one of these guys escaped and actually went to the police. And the police wanted nothing to do with him. They They were just like... We're not interested in these minority groups, these uh, black guys or these gay guys. And they just put him back into the house with Jeffrey Damler and he even killed one of them. So who you are and what group you belong to, and if you belong to one of these sort of marginalized groups, can have a huge effect on a serial killer's ability to kill you and people like you repeatedly with something close to impunity. Complicating the situation, there were, of course, some serial killers who did target... Uh, for example, young white women. So famous ones, of course, would be Ted Bundy and Ed Kemper. This does complicate the situation. Some elements of this I think you need to take into account would be the time frame in which they did it. There were times when uh, people behaved differently. The idea of serial killers wasn't out there quite as much as it is now. So these young women were still, in, in Ed Kemper's case, were still hitchhiking quite a lot. Um, and they would still be going places by themselves, whereas perhaps they wouldn't today, or they would be more aware of their circumstances and maybe more suspicious of people. And that's got to do with the change in society. But also, again, there were cases with Ted Bundy where um, the college women he was he was abducting, their housemates and roommates would make reports and they weren't taken seriously. So again, it's opportunism. It's about taking advantages of victims who are lower down in the power pyramid. Ted Bundy, of course, was, was famously a, a very charismatic and sort of a powerful personality, which is something we mentioned earlier, but I think in his case, it definitely helped him out. For another British example, you had Fred and Rosemary West, Gloucester, in their supposed house of horror at 25 Cromwell Street. They murdered loads and loads of people, but they were all runaways, teenagers and young children who had nowhere else to go, who had to leave dangerous home situations. They managed to get away with this for a very long time and racked up a truly horrendous body count, largely because these were people about whom little was known and about whom people didn't care a whole lot. Their only victim 
they, they killed about whom we know a whole lot was Lucy Partington, who was, uh, again, middle-class college student and uh, cousin of British writer Martin Amos. So in her, in her case, having a connection to a well-off and um, well-spoken and well-written and well-connected um, relative meant that we knew more about her and people started taking this case and these disappearances more seriously. For another example from the British serial killing book, various famous turn-of-the-century British killers like Thomas Neil Cream and George Smith, he reckons that they owed their ability to kill women to the particular social structure of the time and the place of women within it. Not that they were necessarily super geniuses or that they were particularly magnetic or charismatic. So he writes, Watson's description of Smith's trial is part of his attempt to paint a picture of personal responsibility that centres on the, quote, mysterious powers that Smith supposedly used to seduce women. This is entirely consistent with the medical-psychological tradition of theorising about serial killers. Watson is less keen to acknowledge that Smith was merely a grotesque reflection of the male-dominated hierarchical culture of late Victorian and Edwardian Britain, and that his, quote, mysterious powers were not unique to him, but rather commonly enshrined in the law, customs, and practice of the times. To achieve his ends, Smith had been obliged to deal with male lawyers, insurance agents, estate agents, bankers, and a host of other professionals, Yet none of these highly educated men had thought that his actions and demands were unusual or suspicious. So George Smith's mysterious powers were not so mysterious after all. They were simply the ruthless exercise of power based on gender and marital status. Any single woman, especially one past the normal marrying age, could not afford to ignore the attentions of a suitor, no matter how recently they had met, nor how obsessively interested he seemed to be in her finances. So this cuts away at some of the myth of the charismatic super predator. I can't escape the idea that some of these guys just would not get away with this today. And like I said, Ted Bundy was an extraordinarily charismatic guy. I still don't think he would get away with doing what he did then today. Largely because he didn't target junkies, runaways or prostitutes. And that's kind of what it comes down to. And that's the societal explanation that I'm going with for this episode. Here's a quote from the guardian so it's, it says the best database of serial killers was developed by mark amont emeritus professor at radford university in virginia he agrees there has been a clear downward trend there's no question that there has been a decline since the 80s in the number of identified serial killers i'm careful to say that there has been a decline in the number of killers we can identify there could be thousands of serial killers that we don't know about for some reason we're not identifying as well as we did in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So I think this is important. They might, If they're still out there, well, it's because they're killing people that we're not noticing or don't care about. He also talks about how society has changed. People tend not to hitchhike. They uh, tend not to let kids go to the shop by themselves, that sort of thing. But the killings that are still going on today and that are still unsolved tend to be of vulnerable, marginalised people. Uh, and I found an FBI quote that says, uh, primarily women living high-risk transient lifestyles. So that's prostitutes, it's runaways, poverty-stricken First Nations women who are being disappeared up in the, the Trail of Tears in, in, in Canada, up in the Northwest. Also, homelessness being out of control now compared to the 70s, 
means that you have a whole population of people, a larger number of people, who are more or less off the grid and could be could be disappearing in large numbers without anybody really knowing about it. By and large, the poorer you are, the more likely it is that you are to be killed by a serial killer or otherwise. And the wealth inequality that's uh, exacerbating in all the richest countries at the moment only exacerbates this. So from Quora, of all places, where I went hunting around for some uh, quotes this week, uh, a fellow by the name of Franklin Vaux uh, puts an interesting answer to a question, is it harder to be a serial killer like Ted Bundy today? And he puts this more bluntly than I thought that I could. He says, Bundy killed young, pretty white women. In today's world, that's a non-starter. You can get away with being a serial killer today, but you can't kill young, pretty white women. You have to kill people the police won't bother to investigate. You can get away with it by killing homeless people, sex workers, and other populations the police don't care about. A far cry from the well-to-do Leeds and Jacoby families of Red Dragon. The cultural effects of Hannibal Lecter, of course, have been huge. Going back to Making Murder, the fiction of Thomas Harris by Philip Simpson, he says, Cashing in on the phenomenal success of Silence, studios scrambled to make other respectable or upscale serial killer movies like Seven in 1994 and the ironically named Copycat in 1995. Director Spike Lee turned to the genre with his film Summer of Sam in 1999, based on the Son of Sam murders that terrorised New York City during the 1970s, and interestingly, several television series appeared that were obviously indebted to silence, including The X-Files, Millennium, and Profiler. So, what's my conclusion here, folks? Well, Red Dragon is a brilliant read. Do check it out. You can find it easily enough in second-hand bookshops anywhere. Thomas Harris made excellent use of new ideas and advances in criminology, and he anticipated a swing in public interest from supernatural horror to crime-based horror. He introduced a whole new type of monster, or at least he created a new life, lease of life for them. And of course, Hannibal Lecter has gone on to become one of the classic literary and movie villains of all time. But the effects of this have been that the emphasis on the killer himself and the sociology of the killer, and not the social situations that allow him to kill repeatedly, have led to decades of sort of fears of urban legends and serial killer fiction that almost completely obscures the reality of the true banal horror. This has been Wide Atlantic Weird. Hope you've enjoyed yourself. Our next episode is going to be an interview with Brent Burton from over in the Pacific Northwest. We are returning to the world of cryptozoology, in fact, crypto-ornithology. So I discovered a legend of a mythical bird from the early days of American exploration. Brent has an interest in all things raptor bird, and we will be having a chat about Audubon and the Washington Sea Eagle. So check in with us for that. As always, uh, you can find us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, and you can find us on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. The truth the existence of...